2: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lieball at St. Joseph's University, and my guest today is Margaret Roberts, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. She's here to discuss her important new book, Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, I, I'd like to acknowledge that this is my per- first COVID-19 Stay in Place podcast. I usually work through a stack of books on a variety of topics that I've assembled over months, but I'd like the help of listeners with some books you believe speak to the current challenges COVID-19 poses to politics and political institutions. If you have any ideas, please tweet at me at Susan Lee Bell. Or email me at Susan Lee Bell. that's S-L-I-E-B-E-L-L at SJU.edu. If you remember a particular New Books in Political Science podcast from previous times that you think is also relevant, send that along to me as well. So, Molly, your n- new book challenges us to really rethink our definition of censorship and how censorship is deployed both by authoritarian and democratic governments. Um, Although the case focus is China, the book has implications for research in digital politics, the politics of repression, political communications, as well as understanding Chinese politics. So people hear censorship and they think of governments removing material or harshly punishing people who spread or access information information. You're arguing something very different. Um, You introduce an idea, which I found so compelling and so clear, called uh, porous censorship, which you say can be very useful to authoritarian regimes because it allows for customizing repression, particularly how it can have different effects on elites and the majority. And you do such a wonderful job of identifying three different types of Of censorship that really clarifies not only this case, but other cases. So I'd like to start by you talking us through these three types of censorship, and then we can talk about how they are applied to elites and how they are applied to the majority of citizens.
1: Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Um, So when I started writing this book, I thought, you know, we don't really have a theory of how censorship affects people you know, how or what are the different ways in what censorship impacts access to information, the ability to spread information. And so I came up with these three different mechanisms and to make them easier to remember, um, they all start with F. So the first way, and I think the way that people most commonly think about how censorship affects people is through fear. So most people think, okay, the government comes in and says, you can't, Say something, you can't access something. And if you do that, there's going to be a certain punishment for doing that. So there's a law, like a censorship law, that prevents you from doing that. And this happens all over the world where there are things that are sort of off limits and if you spread something or you share something, then something bad happens to you. But the problem with fear for authoritarian regimes is um, it can really have some backfire effects. So um, even though a lot of autocrats use fear uh, as a form of censorship, um, it's hard to use in a really widespread way. So imagine if fear is – if, if uh, you use fear, but it's it's not really that believable, then a lot of times what happens is what's called a backfire effect, where people are like, you're trying to censor me, but I don't want to be censored. Um, and people get really angry about it. Um, the other thing that it can do is it can draw people toward the material. So people have to be aware of what is off limits and what might happen to them. And so if they're aware of what is off limits, and they might think, oh, this sounds really interesting. The government doesn't want me to read this. I'll, you know... I'll, I'll go dig into it more. And the other problem with this is if it's too effective, it um, can create something um, that's called like the dictator's dilemma, which is that if you have too widespread fear, then people don't want to say anything negative about the government. And this can make the government unaware of big problems that local governments are not following their directives or that there's corruption or things that are systematic problems within governance. And so it makes it very difficult then for governments to incorporate that information and fix it before it's sort of too late. So fear, because it's observable, because you have to know about it in order for it to work, isn't necessarily the most ideal thing for governments to use, um, especially in authoritarian regimes, and especially in a widespread way. And the internet, where there are, you know hundreds of millions of people, for example, online in China, um, you have to if you're going to censor something like the internet, you ha- it has to be widespread. And so, in some sense, it's it's more difficult for authoritarian regimes to use that. And that's why what we see happening sort of around the world is a lot of regimes um, relying on different other mechanisms of censorship. And in particular, what I try to bring to light in the book is, is two mechanisms called friction and flooding. And so the idea behind friction is that instead of making something explicitly off limits, you just make it harder to find. You just create some type of barrier that makes it's less likely that people are, are going to be willing to, to pay those costs to access it. So, for example, um, the Great Firewall blocks foreign websites from China. You can get around the Great Firewall, but it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of money. Um, You have to figure out how to do it. um, And this creates enough friction that not a lot of people are willing to decide to go out of their way to do do that. Um, Same with sort of reordering search results or slowing down the internet during sensitive time periods. These are all things that um, make it more difficult for people to access information, but even without making it explicitly off limits. And the other reason why friction is particularly effective is because people don't have to be aware of it in order for it to work. So you could go to a library, you could try to check out a book. That book's like not in the library. You're not really sure why it's not in the library. Is it not in the library because the government has... You know, banned it, or because the librarian just didn't think it was that important, and so it's not there. And that sort of ambiguity makes it a lot easier to sort of explain this type of censorship away, and so it can be really effective, especially when people aren't aware that the government is behind the friction that's going on. The last form of censorship is flooding, and this is basically imposing friction, but doing it by um, introducing material into the information environment in a way that creates friction for the material it competes with. So what we've seen is governments around the world have organized these sort of like online armies of people or bots or a combination of the two to introduce information onto the web during certain time periods in order to distract away from information that they don't want people to see or to create a misinformation that, that confuses people. Um, and, and in this way, this type of flooding um, impacts access to information because people have a hard time figuring out what is good and what is bad information. And so the cost of, of acquiring good information goes up. And we definitely see this in China. We also see this around the world. Um, in in not only authoritarian regimes, but also in democracies.
2: So with fear and, sorry, with friction and flooding, in in both cases, what you you seem to be saying is that you can get around them. You can wade through all of the excess information in flooding, and you can work harder, either spending time or money to get through the missing information information. even if you're not sure why it's missing, but th- there is a way to get around it. In the in the book, you're very clear that these three strategies apply very differently to elites, uh, journalists, people who are willing to spend that extra time. And so the more highly motivated uh, and the majority. Can you walk us through a bit more about how, these three strategies are used with these two very different groups.
1: Yeah, definitely. So what's interesting about fear and friction and flooding is they have different impacts on different types of people. They also have different impacts during different time periods. And so if you think about friction, um, one of, I think, the biggest findings in political science is that people generally, most people most of the time, don't care that much about politics. And this makes a lot of sense because people are unlikely to be pivotal in political situations, even in democracies where you have a vote. Your unlikely, your vote's unlikely going to sort of make the difference in the election, right? And so, and people are busy. They have a lot going on. They have their job. They have entertainment. They have things that they're, they're they want to do in their lives. And so, spending a lot of time educating yourself about politics is typically not. A very, uh, you know, sort of rational thing. We call this rational ignorance, and this is true not only in the U.S., but it's also true within around the world. In China, this is also true. Um, You know, people are unlikely to be pivotal in political situations, and so they're they're not likely to want to go out of their way to inform themselves about politics. So, because of that, when you introduce friction, when you introduce small costs of access to certain types of information, especially political information, people don't tend to really go out of their way to find that information despite the friction. And and that's true for most of the people most of the time. The exceptions are, of course, people who are really interested in politics for some reason. So this might be someone who really cares about a particular issue, someone who... um, say, is um, are probably more likely among sort of urban, educated individuals, uh, people who are involved with politics, or so people with um, that, uh, you know, for journalists or academics or people who are, are sort of in, in, in intertwined with politics. And so what we see from the data is that people in China are more likely to try to get around censorship if they are, you know, better educated, more interested in politics um, you know, more involved with politics, um, have friends who are abroad, so have political connections outside of China, um, and that because of this, what this does is it creates different information environments for different types of people. Um, there, so there are a whole bunch of people um, uh, who really don't have access to or to a lot of information even though censorship is porous and they could get around it it's really not worth their time and then there is a small subset of people who spend time circumventing censorship or trying to get that type of information um, and so they live in sort of two different information environments
2: one of the things I thought was really interesting was how you pointed out the that the relationship between elites and the majority will change because they will have very different information and there is a sort of prevention of collaboration and collective action. Can you say a little bit more about how you see both sides' acquisition of information on the Internet having long-term effects? So the relationship
1: between uh, So here I'm relying on a lot of political science literature, um, which shows that the relationship between the core and the periphery of a movement really matters. So Zach steinert Threckel, for example, has a very interesting paper on Twitter about this with collective action and and, um, where he shows that, um, you know, this relationship between the core and the periphery has important implications for collective action. So if we see that these two groups are in different information environments and this could have a – an impact on how well they can organize. There's also been a lot of research. There's a long line of research in political science that shows that what you think other people know matters for your propensity to go out and do something. Um, so even if you um, are, uh, you know, you have a particular opinion about the government, if you think other people don't share your opinion because you are aware that they're in a different information environment. Then you might be less likely to be willing to you know take some risks, um, put yourself out there um, because of that and and so certainly uh, this is what we call sort of like secondary beliefs. so the idea your beliefs about what other people believe are also important and um, and uh, this can have an impact on on uh, organization against the government yeah
2: So one of the things I noticed in the book was that you were you're pulling from very different subfields of political science you're incredibly well versed in political behavior you're also uh reading in chinese you're using all sorts of different methods i'm wondering if we could just if you could just tell us a little bit about your training and your work and the kind of methods that you use for the project
1: yeah so um just a little bit of background on how I ended up getting to studying censorship in the first place is, as an undergraduate, I became very interested in China and Chinese politics. I started taking Chinese as a freshman um, in college and spent a lot of time studying abroad there, um, spent a lot of time studying China and Chinese politics in classes. Um, and at the same time, the other sort of interest of mine as an undergraduate was statistics, so I don't know why these two different subjects were so interesting to me, but I but I found them both to be really fascinating. So I remember sitting in an intro to econometrics class and sort of thinking, this is amazing. We can use statistics to study social science, which is what I'm really interested in. Um, and these didn't really come together for me until graduate school. So um, I ended up doing a master's in statistics after my undergrad, and then I ended up going to graduate school. To do a PhD in political science, and I knew I wanted to study China, but I didn't know really what aspect of China I wanted to study. And I knew I wanted to use machine learning and try to understand how we can use statistics differently in political science, but I didn't really know how we we're going to do that either. And so I started studying censorship really by accident, which was that um, I had, um, you know, one of my advisors had this big data set of Chinese uh, social media posts, and uh, he reached out to me and. Um, uh, another uh, graduate student, Jennifer Pan, in my program and said, "You know, what can you do with this? Um, you want to do machine learning, you want to do China, you know how does how does uh, you know do you, how can you study these these the text of these posts?" And we realized that we had the text, we had you know th- many posts, tens of thousands of posts at first, which became then millions of posts later. but um, we had the text of the original social media post and we had a URL we would go back to those URLs and they would be missing. They would be gone. And we realized just that this was a, we could measure censorship. We could actually measure this and we could measure it at scale. I mean, we couldn't ever read all of these posts, but, and we could use statistics and machine learning to then, help guide our read and also summarize what are the differences between these posts that went missing and the posts that stayed up. And so that's how I started studying censorship and Jen and Gary and I, Gary King was the, um, uh, was, was my advisor. And, and we started studying, well, what is the Chinese government censoring? And I started becoming, sorry,
2: Oh no, no. I was just going to ask you when you first learned Chinese and, and, and how you were able to sort of uh, work that in as well.
1: Yeah, so I started studying it as a freshman in, in college um, and studied it all the way through through graduate school. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, I... no,
1: that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I started, I, I got interested after that, when the book came out of this is uh, we were studying sort of what, what the government was censoring and I really became interested in how censorship impacts people and their access to information and politics generally.
2: How easy is it for you to draw conclusions from the general literature on political behavior and the case study in China? You know, as I'm looking, as I'm reading the book, I'm seeing that, you know, you rely on, for example, studies that establish that a majority of citizens don't spend additional time or money to inform themselves. But a lot of that is coming out of the American politics literature and based on Um, observation and studies that were done about Americans. How does your book sort of blend or separate what we know about all people, what we know about citizens, what we know about migrants? Are there differences between the way Americans behave politically and the way Chinese uh, um, behave politically?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And certainly I motivate, you know, there's been a lot more extensive research within the U.S., um, especially survey research on what people know about politics, what they don't know, how they consume political information, how this impacts their vote. And so I'm drawing a lot of the intuition of that from the U.S. case. And then what you see is when you look at survey data within China, when you do interviews in China, you, you see some, a lot of those similar patterns and um, and you also see this cross nationally and there have been some studies like John Zoller Barbara Gettys has a really nice uh, study of, um, of uh, you know rational ignorance sort of comparatively and how this interacts with media censorship so there have been studies of this in other contexts as well Um And 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 you see sort of a lot of these sort of similar patterns playing out of people, you know, especially when they're busy, when they have other things going on, they're not necessarily likely to seek out a lot of other information. And so, um, you know, I really became a um, I really realized that this this literature in the US applied to China when I saw some survey data from China showing that. Um, you know, people, uh, say they decide not to jump the firewall, not because of fear, not because they're scared, not because of legal concerns, but because they don't think there's any reason to, and, um, or it's too bothersome. And that made me think this is really a friction and a flooding explanation. This is really an explanation about, um, about, uh, you know, people not that not really realizing what information is outside of the wall or not really thinking it is that relevant to, to their life as they live it. And
2: throughout the book you use the language of citizens. In fact, that's your sort of go-to word. Um, uh, and I'm wondering if immigrants, refugees, um, or people who've been re- have had their citizenship redefined, like the Uyghurs by the CCP. What, how you conceptualize that? I mean, in the American politics literature, citizen would be somewhat fraught because you have lots of people living in the United States who are not legal citizens. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering about the word. I thought about it as I was reading the book, so I'll ask.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I had a hard time figuring out what word to use uh, to talk about, you know, people. Living in China and their media consumption. I, I didn't, I didn't want to study expats, for example, or people from abroad. I wanted to study people, um, you know. Uh, um, so I, I think I, I think, for, so first of all, so there's a lot of different complications with this. Um, so first of all, um, I think there is definitely a difference between how censorship works within most of China and how censorship works in areas like Xinjiang. Um, and um, we've seen increasingly over the past few years that, um, you know, there is much more fear based censorship in Xinjiang than there is in the rest of China. Um, and, and that and the logic lodger- really-
2: so sorry, not to interrupt you, Molly. Yeah, sorry, but we yeah. have listeners of all kinds. We have some real. We have the China specialists listening, and we also have people who who focus on other areas. Can you just back up a second and just? Um, I didn't explain who the Uyghurs were or Sejong, but just two sentences to kind of catch people up.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, so Xinjiang is a province within China that uh, where. Um, There are is a large portion of um, uh, people with uh, who are uh, Uyghur uh, or or consider themselves to be Uyghur, uh, which is a a sort of ethnic minority within China, um, who who have been especially recently um, under um, you know in really terrible situation brought upon by the Chinese government, where um, they're Are a lot of reports coming out of of Xinjiang of large numbers of people being detained um, basically based on their religion and their identity um, in camps um, and um, an extremely, really sad and terrible uh, human rights situation happening in Xinjiang um, right now? Um, And what we know, we don't know a a whole lot, but what we do know is that these people are under intense surveillance um, through. their uh, phones through the internet and also within their lives generally um and um and that uh you know this is a really different situation i would say in terms of censorship and repression and control than we see within the rest of china which is what the main focus of the book is is on um so and and this has really been revealed within the last two to three years um we didn't know very much about this, and, and it seems to have really ramped up in the last two to three years, um, and it's a terrible, really terrible human rights situation.
2: Um, before we turn to the chapter, chapter three on China, which I think is a good place for us to go, I, I just wanted to ask you how how this project falls within the sort of general history of censorship, Um what did that look like in the past? Does it matter? Is it, is it too far from digital, uh, from the internet to matter? In other words, does this typology work only for the modern era once we have this kind of machine learning or would it apply to the past periods as well?
1: So I think in general, the mechanisms of fear, friction and flooding apply over historically they apply over time um there are lots of instances where um you know certain types of information that governments have tried to put make certain types of information not explicitly off limits but slightly more difficult to to find or slightly um you know um putting some friction on the information in order to make um it sort of slow down um certainly library access um access, journalists access to certain areas, for example, of war zones, you might also think about as, as certain type of friction. Um, and, and so we'd have there, I think there are a lot of examples of, of friction and flooding throughout history. That said, I think it's more relevant to the current time period than it ever has been. And that's because, fear has become less useful in some ways with the internet. As you have more and more people online, it's more and more difficult to deter everyone or to control everyone to only say certain things about certain topics or, you know, don't not access certain types of information. And so friction and flooding though, have become much easier to use because, um, people are very impatient online. They are, um, you know, you there's a lot of lot of evidence to show that people switch, um, switch the information that they're getting um, constantly when they're on their phone when they're online, and if if a YouTube video loads just a second slower or uh, search is millisecond slower, it has huge effects on how long people are willing to wait for certain types of information, and so if you can make that those that information just slightly slower relative to other information, you can actually really control a lot of what people are doing online. And There's a lot of evidence of this, what, what search results get put up to the top and people aren't even aware that they're subject to that control because so much of this is happening so quickly. And it seems like just technical error rather than um, what's going on. So rerouting people on the internet is, is very, is, is not difficult and it's, it's and it's, it can be very effective. And I think, you know, net neutrality, these types of conversations, a lot of, a lot of this is centering on the idea that people can be with speed of the internet has really big effects on traffic. And so I think friction of letting to become even more relevant in the age of, of the internet. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: So in, in the book, you talk about citizen reaction and you say they're not afraid um, after experiencing online censorship, but they're angered. So can you just say a little bit more about what that, how that anger manifests and also the method that you used to be able to come to that conclusion that it's not fear, but it's anger?
1: Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that I, I try to show within the book is that, um, you know, People are really affected by these small costs of access to information, but when people notice them and when they realize that they're censorship, they are drawn toward the information and then they become angry about it. So so it's these small frictions that are sort of not very salient to the user that are very effective. But but censorship, which is sort of more heavy-handed, more visible, people really don't like. And there are a few different ways in which I see that within the data. So one is through surveys. We see people, uh, you, you know, if, if people are asked about their experience of censorship, we see a lot of people realize that they've experienced censorship and they also report being very angry by this, by this realization. We also see this within the social media data. So we see, um, you know, we can use the method I was talking about earlier of, of seeing when posts were deleted to figure out when people experience censorship. And we don't see big changes in the way that they're interacting with the platform after they experience censorship. So it's not like censorship itself has a big deterrent effect on them. And in fact, they tend to complain quite a bit about censorship after they experience it. Um, and we also see this um, uh, when people consume information online. Um, so um, you know, if people are see censorship online, they're all they're likely to go sort of seek out information about the censored topic. Um, and this is often what's called a, a Streisand effect. So this is um, coming from uh, Barbara Streisand uh, was um, angry that pictures of her um, mansion were on a California Coastal Records Commission website. And she sued to try to get these taken down. And then all of a sudden everybody went to look at picture, the pictures of her mansion because okay. it sort of drew people toward that information. right? And we have seen, we see examples of this all over the world, where you know, as soon as people become aware that something's off limits, they start searching for it because they want to know, well, why is it off limits, and what am I missing? You know, um, it, it makes it more salient for them.
2: Um, you talk about when you're ta- when you're focusing on friction, uh, a set of self-immolation events in Tibet, and you use this as a way of exploring friction. I thought it was just a really compelling part of the book, and I'm wondering if you can summarize a little bit about what it was and what you found.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to understand was, is how fast censorship happens impact the spread of information? This is very difficult to study. Um, so what I did was I took, you know, in the area of about two or three years, there were a lot of, there was a, a lot of different self-immolation events that happened within Tibet. And these were all protests that were highly censored online. Um, So information about them was highly censored. And um, what I did was try to figure out that they were sort of evenly distributed among days of the week. Um, And what we know is there's been some evidence within the literature to show that um, some days of the week censorship is is quicker than others. So censors also tend to follow sort of a work schedule. And what I found within the book is that Um, You know, censorship that have or or these self-immolation events that happen on weekends were more likely to have more social media posts about them than the self-immolation events that happened during the week when censorship was a little bit faster. And this was some some evidence that um, that, uh, you know, the quickness of censorship can have an impact on how far this information travels. Um, And so even though, you know, there was some information about most of these events online. Um, you know, how quickly, how quickly that, that gets censored is, is really important.
2: I think we've said this, but I just want to make sure, so hard for me to sometimes remember what I've read and what um, we've, we've managed to cover. You lay out the three types. You use China as this example. One of the reasons that looking at porous censorship in China is Important is that they're moving from this sort of institutional structure and methods from micromanaging consumption and production to this porous censorship. And you want to say that the methods used by the Chinese are are not something just to observe in the Chinese case, but also they're important because they provide this great empirical case, but also because because they're a model for other authoritarian regimes. Um, to, to look at this, and so, as you look at the strategies of porous um censorship in China, you notice exceptions and I was wondering if you can take us through the exceptions of periods of crisis and also sudden uh impositions of censorship,
1: yes, so for um Friction is very effective for most people most of the time because most people most of the time are not willing to go out of their way to find political information. But what's interesting is there definitely seem to be exceptions to this rule and time periods where people are are willing to seek out information uh, where they may not have otherwise. So I talk about two examples of this within the book, but I think that there are a lot that we can think about um around the world and also within China. Um, so one exception is that um, the survey data that I use within the book, the enumerators were in the field um during um uh in Tianjin during um a big explosion at a chemical plant that happened in the middle of the city. So this is a really tragic event where um, there was a chemical plant, middle of Tianjin, it exploded. Um, It killed um, hundreds of people. And as you can imagine, a huge explosion. And it was also broadcast on social media. There were pictures everywhere of this. A huge explosion in the middle of the city that kills hundreds of people is something that people are really uncertain about. They're trying to seek out information, try to figure out what happened. Is it going to happen again? What was the cause of this? And what we see in the survey data before and after the explosion was that the biggest difference that we see between these two types, these two respondent types of respondents, is that is their um, is their self-reported jumping of the firewall. So um, the um, So many more people are are jumping the firewall after the explosion than before the explosion. Um, And and I think what's happening here is that people are seeking out information. um, And uh, because of this crisis, because that they feel that their own personal safety is affected. The other example that I should talk about within the book is entertainment. So um, this is drawing from a paper that I wrote with Will Hobbs, who's an assistant professor at Cornell Um, And that came out um, in the American political science review that um, that there's certain time periods where people are willing to seek out entertainment um, across censorship or when entertainment is blocked. And then this introduces them to lots of political information that they wouldn't have had otherwise, which we call a gateway effect. So what happened was in September of 2014, China blocked Instagram and uh, people are so people, there were a lot of people using Instagram in China. Instagram is a really addictive platform and a lot of people downloaded VPNs. We show that through uh, data coming from app download websites, lots and lots of people downloaded VPNs on the day of the Instagram block to get on Instagram. And then we show through data that lots of websites that had long been blocked in China experienced tons more traffic because, Of the Instagram block, so people downloaded a VPN. They got across the firewall to get on Instagram. But now that that friction was overcome, they decided to get on Twitter and Facebook and Wikipedia and all of these websites that have long been blocked by the Great Firewall. And in doing so, that Instagram became a gateway to all of this other political information that people didn't have access to before. And I, I think entertainment is particularly interesting in this in this context because people. Uh, even though people are not willing to seek out political information, they might be willing. Might, they might have more of a demand for entertainment? So I think the NBA is also another example where you might see something like this effect. Right, in the NBA, a lot of these games get banned um, from uh, from being uh, shown in China, but this might create incentives people who are really diehard fans to get across the wall just to view them in a different way, and that could provide gateways to other types of information. Um, and so entertainment, in particular, can have a, a sort of a conduit effect on politics.
2: As you listened to the news since December as China was dealing with COVID-19 and you've studied all of this this behavior in terms of how they manage information what were your observations did you does any of what was what is focused on in the book did you see any of that played out or did you see something that was sort of the opposite
1: yeah, so this has been a really interesting time to follow um, uh, censorship within China. And in partic- and and you definitely do see a lot of the same patterns in the book playing out during this time period. Um, so the first is that um, one of the things that I think we've seen in recent months is a really big backlash to censorship. Um, so especially the news that these doctors like Li Wenliang were censored when they tried to um, share with their friends and, and families on social media about the virus and that this delayed the response to the virus, um, this created a huge backlash, I would say, against against censorship. Um, and we definitely see lots and lots of people on social media calling for, um, you know, more openness on the part of the government. Um. The other thing that we definitely see is we definitely see the same type of information seeking. So from the data that I continue to collect on what people are accessing from China, um, you definitely see some of the same patterns that you see within the Instagram block, within the Tianjin um, explosion. So this sort of crisis situation where people are ripped out of their daily lives because of a crisis where their personal safety is affected creates incentives for people to get around poor censorship. And I definitely do think we're seeing that within China. At the same time, I don't think that a lot of these calls for decreases of censorship will impact the way that the regime is handling information. I don't think we've seen any evidence that the regime has decided to open up or to be less less heavy-handed on um, censorship on social media um, censorship or you know, propaganda generally. I, I think we've actually seen a tightening in recent weeks. Um, and so I um, you know, I'm not sure that a lot will change in the future.
2: In the book, you do a really good job of of showing how it is that even though your focus is on China and even though your focus is on authoritarian governments, that that this understanding of censorship has implications beyond authoritarian regimes, that, that democracies may not be using fear, but that we can see the effect, the costs of, uh, of access and the way availability of the internet is regulated, of the way data is managed. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about the implications of this book for liberal democracies.
1: Yeah, so I think, I don't really have any very good answers here, but I think that in writing the book and in understanding how censorship is working from China came brought me to a lot of questions about how information is distributed within democracies. So, um, you know, having sort of thought about censorship and the mechanism of censorship is fear, friction, and flooding. I think a lot of times in democracies we think about Uh, freedom of speech is the absence of fear. So it's that the ability to say anything you want in a public domain without fearing punishment. Of course, that's very important. And definitely that's something that should be protected. Uh, At the same time, I don't think it's necessarily sufficient, especially in the information overload age, right? So when you try, when you, maybe you try to say something, if you could say something on the internet, nobody has any way of finding it. Does it matter that you said it right? You may not be punished, mm-hmm. but you may be bur- buried in the pile of information that we have and and who decides what information gets prioritized to people but what information is is not prioritized um The other way in which it brings up questions is um is through flooding um So uh, I really like this um, op-ed in the Boston Globe by Henry Farrell and Bruce Schneer on on democracy's uh, dilemma, which is the fact that our own open information environment can be weaponized against us, right? Which is that the idea that what we see maybe in the 2016 election, we're seeing increasingly is that if, you know, as people are able to sort of sign up online and flood the Internet environment uh, because of its openness, they're also drowning out good information online for bad information. But at the same time, how do we deal with that dilemma? Right. So we, in some sense, in order to to control that, we have to make the, infor- the Internet less open. And and how do we kind of try to figure out how to mediate between those things? I think those are all really hard questions. How do we prioritize information in an open environment that is subject to uh, manipulation? Um, Those are really hard questions that I think we have to figure out over the next few years.
2: No, I agree. I I really like the way the book closes because I think you make very, very clear that this does it, first of all, it helps us because it helps us understand why authoritarian regimes are so resilient and the methods that they're using that are not simply direct repression or you know, brainwashing to maintain their power. And I, I think you make a really compelling case for how porous censorship changes political behavior of the vast majority of citizens because they can't see it. They don't know whether there's been an algorithm uh, um programming for them not to get something or it's just an accident that they're getting something or they don't know that something is there because there's so much information. And I just love the way you create the three-part framework, take us through the case, and then have it, as the book progresses, raise these really important questions for both authoritarian governments and and all those in between authoritarianism and liberal democracy. I, I mean, I think raising those kinds of questions is actually the beauty of the book. And um, I guess I'm wondering what's, what is your next project? Where are you, where have you gone since the book came out and how connected is the new research to this research?
1: Yeah. So that's, well, thanks. First of all, thanks. That's really a huge compliment. And um, I think what I've become interested in more recently is I see censorship as sort of a form of, Algorithmic governance in some way. So, trying as as censorship becomes more automated, we're seeing you know certain people being flagged um, and and sort of an individualization or personalization of the censorship apparatus, like um, like you see in the personalization of your ads or these types of things. Right. And this is a more general trend across governments worldwide, where we're using machine learning, we're using some of these methods to personalize um, governance decisions. And I'm interested in how that's worth playing out within not just the censorship regime within China, but but generally within government um, and what sort of implications that has on the state society relations within China.
2: Well, that's terrific. Um, I, I want to encourage listeners to get themselves a copy of Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall. Um, written by Margaret Roberts and published by Princeton University Press, 2018. I, right now, your brick and mortar score, school stores may be closed. Um, but um, Molly, do you have a favorite that you'd like to call out once um, the world has restarted in selling books?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and my favorite brick, brick and mortar bookstore is Powell's Book. It's in Portland. So highly recommend check out Powell's when the world resumes going outside.
2: Well, there's, um, you can certainly get it right now from Princeton university press. Uh, there are some independent bookstores like labyrinth, uh, in Princeton, which is right down the lane from me. Um, that is labyrinth is offering free shipping, uh, to you now during COVID-19. So please Think about your independent bookstores. They'll be struggling during this time. And so will Princeton University Press. So show them your business. And uh, thank you so much, Molly. This was a great book. I enjoyed reading. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thanks so much for having me.